I'm Bill Lawrence, and this is my big bag of onions. The government to California, broken hearts and bars unknown. And through this night we'll share a lover On that dark radio I got so many weeks alone Hands pressed cold against the phone See all the stars to change the world is to dispense with shoes so come on everybody take off your shoes and socks now get your most feeling part of skin in touch with all those different surfaces it can be carpet it can be concrete it can be earth it can be grass the idea with this really is as a feature of making the world a better place it's a kind of act of solidarity with those that perhaps don't have the choice whether they wear shoes or not But the fact is that our feet connect with our brains. 
and they're an amazing perceptual instrument through which we engage with weather, with time, with temperature, with all the different surfaces and textures of our world. This is a time of global warming. Through our feet, I think we can begin to feel it. Through our feet, I think we can begin to be one people, uh, standing through gravity on one Earth. It's like this, okay? Centuries ago, in the deserts of North Africa, people used to gather for these moonlight dances of sacred dance and music that would go on for hours and hours until dawn. And they were always magnificent because the dancers were professionals and they were terrific, right? But every once in a while, very rarely, something would happen and one of these performers would actually become transcendent. And I know you know what I'm talking about because I know you've all seen at some point in your life a performance like this, you know? And it was like time would stop 
and the dancer would sort of step through some kind of portal, and he wasn't doing anything different than he had ever done, you know, a thousand nights before. But everything would align, and all of a sudden, he would no longer appear to be merely human. You know, he would be like lit from within and lit from below, and all like lit up on fire with divinity. And when this happened back then, people knew it for what it was. You know, they called it by its name. They would put their hands together and they would start to chant, Allah, 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 God, God, God. That's God. You know. Um, curious historical footnote: um, When the Moors invaded southern Spain, they took this. Custom with them, and the pronunciation changed over the centuries from Allah, Allah, Allah to Ole, 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 which you still hear in bullfights and in flamenco dances in Spain when a performer has done something impossible and magic. Allah, Ole, Ole, Allah, magnificent, bravo, incomprehensible. There it is, a glimpse of God, which is great because we need that. Listening to my big bag of onions.
You know what? People get very confused about the some of the, the original emoji set are from Japan, and they they just exist because they do. Just it was it wasn't meant to be a big project, and then all of a sudden it, it gained some momentum. It got out in the West, and we standardized it, and now there's a lot more scrutiny given to the the new one. So I see a lot of confusion from people about why there's twelve trains and why you know there's sort of <laughs> a lot of the ones for me. That have been the Japanese ones have been the most fascinating. Learning about, I've had to delve into Tokyo and into Japanese history to come across why some of these even exist. There's the Easter Island statue, which is actually exists in、uh, Tokyo at a train station. So <laughs> the strange ones like that, where you think it's very odd having uh, uh, something from Easter Island there, but really it's just a local reference in Tokyo. Sure. Well, I I am one of the people who's confused though. Why are there nine trains? Yeah, you know what? That that is still confusing to me. That I don't know why even the guy who originally put these together thought the twelve trains were a useful <laughs> <laughs> metric to have. I know trains are popular in Japan, but you do have to ask. And some of them, did they really need、uh, the the two different types of fast train with the the bullet nose and without it? But apparently, he decided there was a need. And I mean, he could. He could. At the time, there was no standards. He could do what he liked. It was just. It was. His little toy to put together a couple of hundred little pictures,、yeah. and, and maybe he was just a train enthusiast. You're listening to my big bag of onions.
Before the 1860s, I don't think any Americans had ever seen a banana, unless they'd traveled to the Caribbean or Africa. At the end of the 19th century, bananas were a luxury item. They were exotic. They were expensive. Because the few bananas that made it to East Coast ports came in on sailing ships, and it depended on the weather and the wind and you know if you could get bananas before they rotted. But then as steamships developed, it became clear that you could get bananas to East Coast ports by steamship pretty easily. And the United Fruit Company started to bring in bananas and made the decision to bring them in as cheaply as possible. Instead of bringing them in and selling them at a high price, a few, we were bringing lots of them and selling them cheaply so they became the poor man's fruit and affordable by anybody. Upper-class people were, were trained not to eat in public, wouldn't be caught dead eating on the street. But the poor people bought fruit off of peddlers' pushcarts and went to discard the fruit on the street where they ate. Of course, that wasn't the only thing that was on the street at that time. You're listening to My Big Bag of Onions. Go down. 
Mrs. Brown as the door closed. Whoever would have thought it? I expect it was because he raised his hat, said Judy. It made a good impression. Mrs. Bird likes polite people. Mrs. Brown picked up her knitting again. I suppose someone ought to write and tell his Aunt Lucy. I'm sure she'd like to know he's safe. She turned to Judy. Perhaps it would be a nice thought if you and Jonathan wrote. Oh, by the way, said Mr. Brown, come to think of it, where is Paddington? He's not still up in his room, is he? Judy looked up from the writing desk where she was searching for some notepaper. Oh, he's all right. He's just having a bath. A bath? Mrs. Brown's face took on a worried expression. He's rather small to be having a bath all by himself. Don't fuss so, Mary, grumbled Mr. Brown, settling himself down in the armchair with the newspaper. He's probably having the time of his life. Mr. Brown was fairly near the truth when he said Paddington was probably having the time of his life. Unfortunately, it wasn't in quite the way he meant it. Blissfully unaware that his fate was being decided, Paddington was sitting in the middle of the bathroom floor, drawing a map of South America with a tube of Mr. Brown's shaving cream.
My dear gentlemen, it's been a bit over three years since I last saw you. And now you must be 22, maybe even as old as 23. At our final class, I asked you if there was anything you wanted. The only wish you expressed, the only thing you ever asked of me in all those months we spent together was for me to speak to you in Korean, just once. I was there to teach you English. You knew it wasn't allowed. But I understood then you wanted to share that bond of our mother tongue. I know that it was important for you to hear that I, your teacher, the one who has seen the world that you are forbidden from, declare your city as the most beautiful. I know hearing that would make your lives there a bit more bearable, but no, I don't find your capital beautiful. Not because it's monotone and concrete, but because of what it symbolizes, a monster that feeds off the rest of the country, where citizens are soldiers and slaves. All I see there is darkness. But it's your home, so I cannot hate it. And hope instead that you, my lovely young gentleman, will one day help make it beautiful. Thank you. You're listening to My Big Bag of Onions. Last night I dreamed of dodecahedrons My eyes were bleeding with crimson sight I tried with all my might to release them These golden
Toxic inflation above your brow. Shall and will. So, according to Strunk and White, I mean, it's funny. There are two things that they say. I've never been able to quite make sense of the paragraph. But first of all, you use shall in the first person singular. And then in the second and third person singular, you use will. So it's I shall, but you will, he, she, it, will. Um, all right. That's nice. That's not the way anybody talks. But there you go. But then there's there's more. Somehow the idea is that if you use shall and will in the same person, the idea seeming to be that you can, and I'm not sure how that fits in with what they first say, but if you can, then shall and will have different meanings. And so shall is about your belief, but will is about determination. And so (laughs) these two sentences, a swimmer in distress cries, I shall drown. No one shall save me. But a suicide says, I will drown. No one shall save me. Wait a minute. Nobody would ever say, I shall drown. No one shall save me. Imagine you're flailing out there in the ocean. Shall is the last thing that will come out of your mouth. The idea that shall is belief and will is determination. Who said? Where'd they get it? You know where they got it? John Wallace. Well, who's he? 16... 53 is when he wrote it, and it was just because. He made it up. He wasn't a linguist. I mean, he wrote his version of how he thought English grammar should go, and he got there faster than most people, but he just kind of made it up. It's the way he wanted shall and will to be.
for half the price Won't you try a portion or a slice Slightly warm but very, very nice Don't ask me to leave it out Or turn it up or pack it in Don't ask me, don't ask me listening to my big bag of onions. I recently had a baby, my first. My son, Kit, was born on the 3rd of January this year. I am a mother. I'm also a mother without a mother. My mum died five and a half years ago. Every time people have asked what it feels like to be a parent, the only word that feels remotely close to the truth is existential. In an instant, I took one step closer to the exit bringing me in stark contact with my mortality, and I am entirely responsible for another human life. Being a mother without a mother feels as lonely as some kind of divine homesickness. This aloneness emerged during my pregnancy. In my third trimester, I experienced every so often an all-consuming and frightening feeling of aloneness. I'd never heard anyone talk of feeling alone during pregnancy, nor read anything about it, and so I felt rather surprised and confused by my experience. I was growing a life inside me, growing my family, constantly with someone else. Why was I alone? After a lot of reflection, it became clear to me that this aloneness was in response to the absolute unavoidable truth that giving birth was something I had to do entirely alone. Whilst I knew my husband would be there and my midwife, no one else in the world could give birth to my baby for me. Perhaps the fact that my mum couldn't be there either amplified the sense of aloneness. But even if she were alive, it was still only me that could do it. Being in touch with that depth of aloneness stirred up the existential reality that we are all ultimately alone in the world. Speed your love to 
to the sea, to the sea, to the open arms of the sea. Lonely rivers cry, wait for me, wait for me. I'll be coming home, wait for me. Right. Also, you might be just sta- looking like you're staring at the wall. This is common. It's like, what did you do today? Oh, I just stared at the wall. That's just sort of a joke. But you might have actually done that. Sometimes you can be in a daze for just a few minutes, just kind of sitting there. Right. You catch yourself not really doing anything. Just yeah, just sitting there. You find that the the time is going by, but you don't. You're not actually focusing on a task or doing something in particular. Good. Uh, next one. It says. Finally, I got out of bed and started walking aimlessly around the house. Aimlessly. Right. Aimlessly means here that you didn't have any direction or any idea about where you were going. I always walk around aimlessly. Some people might say I live my life aimlessly. No goal, arguably, no direction. Arguably. <laughs> no goal, no direction. So I got up and just started walking around the house hoping that I would think of something to do, but I didn't, so I was just aimless. I just kind of walked one place, right, you had another no, place. You had no plan of what you're doing when you're walking around. And I didn't do anything. I just walked, take a look at the laundry room, didn't wash any clothes. Right, it's, it's very easy to do something and walk around aimlessly when you don't really have anything that you need to do. Right. But I did have things that I need, that I wanted to do. Oh, right, exactly. Wanted no deadlines, though. No okay. deadlines. Okay, good. You're listening to My Big Bag of Onions. Oh, 
We desperately need some balance in an era of hell-bent cyber-utopianism. Like the Industrial Revolution and other great eras of societal change, there is a brief moment of opportunity, a window, when it becomes clear where society might be heading. And there is still memory of what is being left behind. Those of us who remember the world and life before the internet are a vital resource. We know what we used to have, who we used to be, and what our values were. We are the ones who can rise to the responsibility of directing and advising the adventure ahead. At this moment in time, we can describe cyberspace as a place separate from us. But will that distinction soon become blurred? How long will it take for us to find ourselves alone and immersed in our smart homes and smarter cars, clad in our wearable technologies? Our babies in captivity seats with tablets thrust in their visual field. Our kids all wearing face-obscuring helmets. Our sense of self fractured into a dozen different social network platforms. When sex is something that requires logging in and a password. When we are competing for our lives with robots for jobs and dark thoughts and forces have pervaded, syndicated and colonized cyberspace we might wish we'd paid more attention. Beside her 
Join me again soon for another big bag of onions.